Right, well, I invite you to turn, if you'd like, to Luke uh, chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're going to uh, read verses 1 through 9 and look at those same verses as we uh, sort of walk through Jesus' parables. We're not going to cover these verses, but if you look at verses 10 to 13, they're arguably uh, an extended application of the parable we're about ready to look at. And the last sentence in verse 13 is, you cannot serve God in money. That is where Jesus is heading with this parable, and the parable helps us tease that out. Before we read Luke 16 to look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are delighted that we can turn to your word and we pray that your Holy Spirit would impress it upon our hearts and lives. Uh, each of us sitting here today needs likely something different from everyone else. We have different backgrounds. We are wired differently, different personalities. We are tempted by different things. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would supply our need, would teach us what we don't know, would make us what we are not yet, so that your name would be praised and Jesus Christ, your son, would be exalted. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless us to our hearts and lives this morning. Our brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone with us here, uh, this morning, this is a, a fun passage. Most pastors would choose to avoid this, myself included, preaching on it. It's got uh, some difficulty in it, but I trust that by the time we get to the end of it, we'll see very clearly what Jesus' point is and also what his point is not. And I want to begin just by diving in, noticing verse 1, charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So uh, this was a fairly common scenario that if you were a wealthy man, a rich man, as he's described, you would not yourself be running the business. You would hire a manager to run the business for you so you can go do whatever you want. Maybe you would start a new business. Uh, maybe you would just have your leisure, but uh, you would be freed up from the daily management of your task. And thus a manager is in a place of utmost importance. If the manager wants to cook the books and personally benefit, he can. If he wants to be honest and help you get richer and richer, he can do that as well. Well, there must have been some friends of this rich man who pulled him aside one day and said, look, <laughs> there's something you should know about your manager. You probably don't know it. You might not know it. 
but he is mismanaging your assets and your wealth. So the master, verse two, called his manager and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So the rich man just confronts him, does what any good uh, master would do. Confronts him, fires him, and the implications are this. The manager who mismanaged the funds knows he's guilty. There's not a reply here saying, oh no, I'm really innocent of this. He knows he's guilty. The manager now knows his boss knows he's guilty. <laughs> and the manager should turn his attention to his future well-being. He's fired. There's no way to argue his way out of this. His job's over and he needs to figure out what comes next. The rich man did something interesting though that stands out and a few commentators pick up on this. He didn't throw his manager in jail. The master fired him. He could have jailed him, right? If he's mismanaging funds, doing something illegal, he could have thrown him in jail, but he doesn't. And so the manager picks up on this. Oh, my master desires obedience, but if you fail him, he can be merciful and patient as well. And so he just asked him to turn into the account and he fires him and they would go their separate ways. So the manager now, knowing he's got a little bit of time, verse three, says to himself, what should I do? My master's taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. So his attention again is no longer on his current job. His attention is looking forward. How am I gonna pull this off? I just got fired, just got my pink slip. I've gotta find a new job, what does this look like? And he starts thinking, you know, digging. Hey, there's a job I can do, right? I can pull that off. I'm qualified to do that. There's just one problem. My back isn't strong enough. I can't do this for 10 hours a day. I can't dig. Qualified to do it, but I can't dig it. He also thinks about begging. Sure, I don't need a college degree for that. I'm qualified to go sit and beg and go find people who will help me. But I'm too ashamed to do that. I'm too proud to go and beg. I wouldn't want to hear all the flack that comes my way from people saying, ha, I know who you are. You're that guy who used to be fairly wealthy. Now you're reduced to a beggar on the street. Serves you right. I'm too ashamed to beg. So he keeps brainstorming and thinking and thinking and thinking. And in verse four, Jesus says, this is what he came up with in the parable. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write down 80. So remember what this man's up against when word gets out onto the street that he's been fired he will immediately become unhirable, and he knows this. Nobody will hire a dishonest manager. So he sets a plan into action which he thinks will actually preserve his future well-being. And his plan, his plan is just brilliant. This is genius. That Jesus could come up with a parable like this on the spot, as it were, and tell it with such brilliance in the mind of this dishonest manager is incredible. So his masters had some debtors who owed him money. The amounts owed were pretty significant, which attests to this man in the parable's wealth. This rich man was rich. And the only, play this, the only way this plan will work is if the word has not yet gotten out that this manager 
is fired. So he goes to the first debtor. The first debtor owed him 100 measures of oil, which is about 850 gallons of olive oil, which is worth about 1,000 denarii in that time. So it would take the average day laborer who makes one denarius a day about three years of pay, three years of work to amass this amount of oil. And he says to that debtor, cut your bill in half. 50 measures of oil are dropped off the uh, bill. And notice he says, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. The manager is in a big hurry. He doesn't know how much longer he has until everyone finds out he's been fired. The only way he's gonna be able to pull this off, the only way the debtors will actually go through with this is if they have no idea that the manager is doing this on his own authority. If they know that the master, the one they owe the debt to is not on board with this and has no idea about this, and this is the manager doing this, they won't go through with this, why? Because now their future business is in jeopardy. They wanna do business with this master. So this manager has to act quickly, and he does. Sit down quickly and write down 50 on the bill. Then he, a second debtor, he's likely sending people out to have the debtors come in. We're, not, we're told there's two debtors that may have been a lot more, and this is just par for the course of how it went. But the second debtor comes in owing 100 measures of wheat. It's about 1,100 bushels of wheat, would have taken roughly 100 acres to produce this amount of wheat. And the wheat is worth roughly 2,500 denarii, or about seven years worth of work for a day laborer if he had worked every single day of the week. And the bill was quickly reduced to 80 measures of wheat. So everybody got about 500 denarii off their bill. Both debtors are led to believe during this process that the manager is still hired. Verse five, how much do you owe my master? He doesn't call him his former employer. <laughs> how much do you owe the guy that just fired me? No, how much do you owe my master? So there's some deception in this. There's some shrewdness. He's gotta keep the charade up until the paperwork is completed. And then indeed he can get his way with his plan. Now the manager is a, hero of sorts, a man who is incredibly generous because he has orchestrated this event. Kenneth Bailey wrote this, the steward or the manager naturally takes credit for having arranged the reductions. He needs say little or nothing. The bills are not due. These sudden reductions come as a word out of the blue. The steward may quietly let it be known. I talked the old gentleman into it. We can easily reconstruct the kind of small talk that would have taken place during the bill changing. After all, he, the steward, was in the fields day after day. He knew that the rain was bad, the sun was hot, the worms were active. The steward thus achieves the position of a factory foreman who has arranged a generous Christmas bonus for all the workers. The bonus itself is from the owners, but the foreman is praised for having talked the owners into granting it. The last part of this assumption is also inescapable. The steward will not carry out a plan that does not reflect to his credit in a significant way, there will be no point in doing so. His point is simply this. By the time this transaction is finished, the debtors know the master must have authorized this, but the manager is the one who really went to bat for us. What a great manager, what a great guy. The owner would not have done this on his own. This was the work of the steward or the manager. And then if you look at verse eight, one of the most obvious things there is to do is mentioned. The master commended 
the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commended him. He didn't commend him for his dishonesty, for his corruption, for his mismanagement. He commended him for being shrewd, for being wise, for sort of thinking on his toes and figuring this out, albeit in a completely selfish way. But wow, what shrewdness. And he's commended for that shrewdness. Why doesn't the master just throw the manager in jail at this point? Not only for mismanaging his money, but also for cheating him out of legitimate debts that are owed him? One simple reason. If the master would run out into the community and into the homes of the debtors and say it was all a mistake, he would be judged stingy. Oh, let's put a stop to this. No, no, you can't reduce your debts. No, this guy was wrong. I fired him. He's trying to pull a fast one. Nope. What would be the reaction of everybody who had their debts reduced? Oh, wow. Oh, well, we told all of our friends already. Like, you've got the reputation of being incredibly generous. You're not going to take back your generosity, are you? Are you that kind of a, are you a kind of a stingy master that way? He's not going to run out of the community and do that and risk his, ruining his reputation. But if the master lets the scandal stand, then he will continue to be considered gracious and kind and merciful and he'll continue to receive praise for his generosity. Granted, he's less rich, but he's got a great standing in the community. Now, what do you say of this manager, this unjust steward and his plan? What would you declare if you were the master and you watched him pull this off in a matter of minutes or hours? You'd say, that was genius. <laughs> Just simply brilliant. Yep, you are shrewd. There is no way around this. <laughs> you have used my money to make yourself look very good, and I'm stuck in a rock and a hard place now. You were the one stuck, and now I'm stuck. I can't tell anybody this. I don't wanna tell anybody this because I'll be perceived as, un as unmerciful then. You have done an incredibly shrewd job. He wasn't praised for being crooked, just for being shrewd. Now, verses eight and nine, Jesus brings this parable home. It's a simple story, right? We all understand it. And he begins by saying the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now that's a mouthful, let's unpack it just a little bit here. The sons of this world, these are unbelievers, just those who are not uh, sons of uh, the kingdom of God's beloved son, right? Sons of the world, fairly straightforward. Their lives are consumed by and governed by this world. They belong to this world only and not to the next world. They, these unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, let me paraphrase this. Jesus is saying that unbelievers are better at using money and resources for their personal benefit than believers are at using money and resources for our personal benefit. Unbelievers do a better job planning ahead and storing up treasure on earth for themselves than believers do in planning ahead and storing up treasures in heaven for themselves. The devil's children do a better job planning for this life than God's children do in planning for the next life. Unbelievers are better at living for this world than believers are at living for the next world. Unbelievers are more mindful of their earthly interests than believers are mindful of their heavenly interests. One more. Unbelievers are better at sizing up and working toward earthly benefits than believers are at sizing up and working toward heavenly benefits. Jesus is not complimenting his disciples with this parable. He's giving us something a little bit difficult to chew on, right? Like in the midst of our steak, there's a bone right there. And this is the bone. It's hard. Ooh, catches our attention. 
He's indicting us, you could argue, chastising us, or causing us to wake up a little bit and start to think through how unbelievers use the money God entrusted to them and stewarded it, and thus how we use what God has given to us to steward. And then in verse 9, he brings it all the way home. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, this is interesting. He begins by saying this, make friends for yourselves. The command and the emphasis on this verse, and thus the immediate application of the parable, is to make friends for ourselves. This is to be a priority for believers, to make friends for ourselves. That's where he's going. Now, this might seem a little bit out of the blue, but stop and think about what the parable was about. What did the dishonest manager do? He reduced the debts. Yeah, but why? What did he pull off so that he could be welcomed into people's homes? He made friends, right? He made friends of these debtors. They became his friends so much so that he was convinced, you know what? When I get fired, they'll let me come into their house. They will never have heard, caught wind of my mismanagement or of my scheme. My master won't tell them. He wants this reputation and they'll welcome me as one of their friends. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. The dishonest manager made friends and Jesus is telling us, make friends, right? Now, he doesn't stop there. He's not calling us to go out and just be generically friendly. That's not the point. But he says this, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So by means of the money, so we live in America here, we have the currency, the US dollar. <laughs> by means of American dollars, by means of unrighteous wealth, right? Like the wealth and the stuff of this world. By means of that, make friends. Use your worldly money to make friends. And then let's put it all together, walking through the whole verse. Make friends by means of money so that when it fails, catch that, when does unrighteous wealth fail? When will nations no longer have currency? When will money no longer be a thing that people use to buy and sell? When the world's over, right? It's a picture of the last day of judgment. When it fails, when, when there is no more unrighteous wealth, when money doesn't matter anymore, when we're at the last day and judgment is taking place, Make friends for yourself by means of money so that when this fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Who may receive you? The friends you made. Whoa. So what Jesus is highlighting is this, this incredibly brilliant genius plan of the dishonest manager. He made friends with money that wasn't his own. It was given to him to steward. He made friends so that when his whole scheme failed, he could be welcomed into their houses. And Jesus is saying, I want you to use the money that I've entrusted to your care, that I've given you to steward, to make friends, so that when you're received into heaven, they will welcome you. There's an earthly, parable's an earthly story, right, with the heavenly meaning. There's a direct earthly parallel here for what we are called to do with our money, the gist of the parable. Let me just paraphrase this. Here's what I want you to do, Jesus is saying. Did you see how incredibly genius and thoughtful and diligent and wise the manager was with his plan to secure his future interest 
and take care of himself. I want you guys to do the same with regard to your futures, but there's a big difference in your futures. His future is in this life. This life is all he has to look forward to, but you all have heaven to look forward to and you will be there forever. So be wise and stewardly with the money I've given to you to support the spread of the gospel so that many people will be one to Christ and become your friends and will welcome you into heaven when you arrive there. Now, what do we do with this? The first thing I want us to notice that the parable makes very clear is that the manager was a steward of someone else's money. And we likewise are stewards of someone else's money. Now, I realize this may grate against our capitalistic American ears because we like to say, well, this is my money. I earned it, I worked for it. And I'm in the land of the free and I'm free to do whatever I want with it. But right, we have a master and savior, Jesus Christ. And we recognize that we live underneath his lordship. And we would say as believers that everything which we have is from God and we are to steward it and to give an account for it. It is not our own, just like we are not our own. Now, there are some believers who would push back against this and say something like this, God didn't give me this money, I earned it, I worked hard for it, I worked harder than all the rest and became successful because I'm smarter and hardworking than all the rest. Indeed, that is a mindset that operates in America a lot. But let me ask you this, if that's where we're at, where did your brains come from? Why are you such a great thinker and have this great ability to go out and accumulate a lot of resources? Because God gave you the brain, right? Who gave you the opportunities to be rich? Who gave you the work ethic to be rich? It was striking years ago, I was reading about some uh, ships, they call them ship graveyards. And they take these massive uh, Titanic-like ships, cruise ships, uh, bulk tankers, and they drive them onto shores when, I believe when the tide is high, they run them as fast as they can, as far up as the ground as they can, and there's people who dismantle them. That's what they do for their living, they dismantle them. The owners of the company make a killing on this, but the workers get paid almost nothing. And in Alang, India, which is on the western coast of India, there's a ship graveyard where some 40,000 migrant workers dismantle ships. They work 10 to 15 hours a day. They make $1.50 to $2 a day. And in Bangladesh, they do this work. They work 12 hour days. They make about $2 in a 12 hour shift. The workers do this to feed their families. Many of them die each year from explosions, from all the oxyacetylene that they're constantly breathing in as they torch these giant pieces of sheet metal apart. And they will never have much money at all. And they work way harder, arguably, than the average American. Zero wealth. Opportunity? Yeah, you need opportunity, right? Who decides who's rich and who's poor? God does. Just flat out. Who decided how much money we would have to steward? God does. And it's his. And we will give an account to him about how we stewarded it. So because God has seen fit to design our lives in such a way as to give us resources, we have them because he's given them to us and it's God's money and we're to steward the money and give an account to him about it. Now, first thing, we are stewards. The second thing I want us to notice is that believers should use the money God has entrusted to our care to make heavenly friends or purchase heavenly friends or buy them. How do we make heavenly friends? By spreading the gospel, really simple, right? 
How are our friends going to welcome us into heaven who are currently in this world our enemies because they don't yet know Jesus? They're going to have to come to faith. Well, what can we do to see that that happens? We can support gospel work, right? Local church, missionaries, ministries. Um, there, there are millions, literally, of ministries that we could pour our money into, which spread the gospel and see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the spread of the gospel, all by the work of the Holy Spirit, of course, who will then become our friends, who will be there in heaven, welcoming us when we arrive in heaven's gates, as it were, saying, hey, you want to know something? I, God just told me about this. Now, I have no idea if this is going to happen, but wouldn't it be amazing if we get to heaven and the people there, a lot of the people there, you know what? The Lord just told me about this when I got to heaven after I had passed away, that you gave $50 a month to support this missionary out in the field, and they told me the gospel, and I repented, and I believed. Thank you. This is amazing. Now, we get to hang out all through eternity because you did this. You stewarded your resources and money well. It's vital, beloved. Uh, Grant, uh, no, there was a, an individual who, uh, in Springfield, Missouri, I came to know, and he worked for Crew, uh, which is Campus Crusade for Christ, for those of us who are over 40. I think uh, younger generations just know it as Crew. They do great work on college campuses, spreading the gospel, and we had a few people from that chapter who were part of our church. And one particular guy uh, was giving his... Um, uh, speech, his appeal to support him in missions. And it was a different kind of speech. In it, he actually said, I think all believers are called to go to the mission field. I think every one of you should go to the mission field. And there was a, a lot of seat moving, a lot of folks really uncomfortable as they heard this. And afterwards, I talked to him and um, uh, mentioned, you know, you never really told us that before. What's going on? He said, well, I think that's true. He said, you've been spending six months, which he had, trying to raise money to go to the mission field. Who is giving you that money? Oh, this person, this person, this person. How are they getting that money? From the mission field? No, they're working. How do you expect to go and be a missionary if there is nobody staying at home working to support you? And the lights clicked on. And from that day forward, he realized that the people who are working and are generous in spirit supporting mission work are just as important as the missionaries. It finally clicked. Whoa, if there aren't 20 or 50 or 100 people working to support a missionary, those missionaries can't go. I can't go to a college campus in China and spread the gospel. And it was a watershed for him. His mind started to change. And it was a real encouragement too, because he actually talked to us again and sort of flushed this out. Like, hey, I'm really thankful for all that you guys are doing. You're, you, God's given you so much to steward, right? We keep most of it. 80 to 90% probably, we use it to support ourselves. But I'm so thankful that out of generous hearts, you're actually using that money to support me so I can go spread the gospel. And in light of this parable, we would say, so that we can make friends and be welcomed into heaven by them. I know oftentimes there is a big disconnect, beloved, between our work, between our going to work on a daily basis and people coming to faith. Sometimes we can view it as that. Oh, beloved, think about this. We work. We earn money, just the currency of unrighteous wealth in America. And we give to gospel work and people come to faith. And now we have friends that we helped bring about, humanly speaking, who are going to be in heaven welcoming us 
when we get there. It's tremendous the way God has designed this. Don't, ask, don't underestimate the importance, the value of your giving for the saving of souls and the filling of heaven. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, I'll, I'll tell you what breaks my heart is how many opportunities there are in this world now to advance the kingdom of God that can't be addressed for lack of funds for the simple reason that believers consistently, persistently, and unrepentantly rob God. Now his reference to robbing God is actually pulled out of Malachi 3. Here's the, here's the verse, Malachi 3, verse 8. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Uh, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The Israelites were refusing to tithe, right? 10% of their goods and of their resources. And God charged them with robbery. How can God charge them with robbery? Well, he owns everything that they have. He's saying, you're robbing me. You owe this to me, right? You have to steward things in such a way. You're taking what rightfully belongs to me, is what the Lord is saying to the Israelites, and you are giving nothing back. Now, there's an objection at this point that some people will bring up. That was the old covenant. We can't rob God nowadays, right? We're not under the Mosaic covenant. We're not. It's been superseded by the new covenant in Christ. And we don't have to tithe anymore, right? There's not that old covenant law hanging over our head. We would say, you're right. I'm there's no new covenant law that says you have to tithe or give 10%. But the new covenant is better and greater. We've seen more. We've had more revealed to us. And one of the things which has been revealed to us even more so than any Old Testament seed could have dreamed about is God's generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So God put his own son on the cross in rags. Jesus came born in Bethlehem in a manger. Jesus walked around an itinerant preacher with no mansion in Capernaum at his headquarters, with no fancy entourage that he was going along with, actually supported by a lot of ladies from Luke 8, we're told, out of their own means supported him and the disciples. He became poor, beloved, so that we, through Jesus' work, on the cross could become rich. This is incredible generosity. How rich are we? We have spiritual treasure in heaven. And remember the beatitude, the meek will inherit the earth. We're gonna inherit this whole earth one day. It will burn up with fire. People are going after land all the time, buying it up, scooping up, trying to become billionaires. And Jesus says, look, the meek, they'll inherit the whole earth, just relax. <laughs> when you get to heaven, the whole thing will be yours. It will all belong to you. This is incredible riches God has given to us through Jesus Christ. And so we might say, yeah, I don't have to. Okay. But I think most believers would say this, and this is what I've always landed on as well. Tithe in the new covenant is like a starting point. 10% after what God has revealed to us is like a starting point. But God doesn't want us to give begrudgingly saying, okay, Lord, fine, I'll just give it. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Notice there is no compulsion. There is no command. There's no imperative. God's not saying, you know what? I want you to give it to me, even if you hate doing it. 
Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart. This is a personal rustling, isn't it? Every one of us as believers has to work through this. What is going on in my heart? I need to decide that. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Over that turns giving and kingdom work, supporting it financially, seeking friends in heaven who will welcome us. It turns it into a radically different view than the one who says, well, I guess I'll do this if I have to. Now, there's a second objection that often comes up. Look, you're a pastor. Of course, you're going to say this. Well, beloved, the standard and rule applies to me, too. We're all under the authority of the word of God. It doesn't matter what role we have in a church. Pastor, elder, Sunday school teacher, any of us as members, it doesn't matter what role, how big the church, beloved, we are all under God's authority, under the authority of the word. We'll all have to give an account whether or not we served God or money, right? Verse 18, we can't serve both of them. We can't live to store up treasures in this world and to serve money and serve God at the same time, right? We all understand it. None of us can serve two employers at the same time between eight and five. We're either working for one or working for another. It's just not possible. Either we have a master whose name is money or a master whose name is God. And the question for us to work through is, which one am I serving? Now, let me just conclude with this. Uh, you're not accountable to me regarding your money. I'm not accountable to you regarding my money. But we are all accountable to God for the stewardship of our money. And he knows how much money we give to his church, to his kingdom, to the spread of the gospel. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who sets the standards. He's the one who is keeping track of whether we are living like unbelievers, storing up treasure on this earth, which can benefit us for only 70 to 80 years, or whether we're storing up lasting friendships in heaven through the spread of the gospel, friendships which will benefit us for an infinite amount of time. What a thought, what a glorious thought that we, through our giving, as small as it might be, right? The widow gives a penny or the rich person who might give a million bucks and it's just a fraction of what he has. We, through our small bit, get to be part of having friends be brought to come to know Christ who are going to heaven and they're going to welcome us and we're going to welcome them and we're going to do life together forever. Just an incredible privilege. Let's pray.